All right, brand new message series that we're kicking off uh, today, Samson, No Flaw Too Far. And I'm going to start the uh, series with a, with a bit of a, a confession, a, a story. This is, this is, by the way, a cautionary tale, so I don't want to hear about it later, like, you know, my kid did this because you did this, and it's, just, it's a terrible idea, and I, I know that. I've grown, I've matured since then. I'm now making much better, much better decisions. Um, but also, you're going you're gonna to have to know that, that this story takes place at a time, you guys, when I was in love, right? So, so love covers a multitude of sins, and we know that that's totally out of context, out of that verse. That's not how that goes. It takes place, I'm a teenager, I'm a senior in high school, and I'm dating the woman who would later become my wife, right? Again, I was in love. And I was in high school, she was in college, so I was like this cool high school kid that's dating up, dating this college girl, and she probably tried not to think about it all that much, <laughs> But, but because we were in love, we would want to spend every waking moment with each other, right? You guys kind of know that tingly feeling, right? The, the butterflies in your, in your stomach. And so we would end up spending so much time together um, late on into the night, which honestly, like looking back, is now like the wee hours of the morning, right? Just, just every possible minute with one another. And so the same thing would, would start to happen. A pattern uh, started to develop. Uh, where, where we'd spend all this time together late into the night, we early hours of the morning, and then I was just walking out to my car after it's like time to, you know, call the night, go home, and I'm just so absolutely tired, just bleary-eyed, just can't even keep my eyes open and recognizing that I now had like a 30, 40-minute drive home, like down 28th Street, you know, there's stoplights, there's other cars around, and I'm like just trying to keep my eyes open, right, because I'm tired, not just from it being late or slash early, but also, like, the same thing just happened last night, and so the tired, the exhaustion is, like, compounding, and I'm doing all the tricks. You guys know the tricks of, like, staying awake, you know? The windows are down, uh, the air conditioning is on, uh, music is just blaring, it's 2000, 2001, so it's like Linkin Park, Avril Lavigne, just blasting through, a little bit of Backstreet Boys, because I was in love, you know? Just trying to stay like, like, you know, nodding off, car kind of veers. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Okay, and it's in those moments, all of us, we get real spiritual, don't we? Like, God, if you could just get me home, you know? Keep me from veering off the road. Keep me from crashing. Like, this, this is it, right? The promises we make to God in those moments of desperation. I promise I will never do this again, right? The future is going to look different than the past. I'm going to call it at an early hour. I'm going to start to get a good night's sleep. And then the next night happens. And all of that cycle just repeats itself one more time. And it's like, it's like I'm powerless. like I'm stuck in this thing over and over and over again. And that, that's what we're talking about this morning. In fact, that's what we're talking about throughout this series. That's what the entire book of Judges is about. It's just getting stuck in this ridiculous, uh, self-destructive kind of cycle. Now, I did it when I'm a teenager and I'm trying to like, drive home from my girlfriend's house and I'm exhausted Pleading with God, promising to God, bargaining with God. The future is going to look different, and then the cycle repeats itself. I think it would just be helpful for you throughout this time together to think about what your cycle is, because we've all got them, right? You know, maybe you're like a, a perpetually late for work. You know, and it doesn't like happen because of one decision. I think it happens because of a series of like tiny decisions. 
And it's like one little decision to snooze one more time, a little decision to check Instagram one more time, just like one more reel. And it's like these little, little micro decisions, these little seconds at a time, but they start to add up, they start to add up. And by the time you get in your car, you're out of the driveway, you're on the way to work, like you didn't intend to cut off the student driver on the highway that morning. And then to like brake check them because the car in front of you stopped. You didn't wake up and choose that. But because you're now running late, like you were yesterday, like you were the day before that, it's like these decisions just kind of have to be made, right? And you're like, God, I believe you. I've read your words. You've parted the Red Sea. You can part this traffic in front of me. Green lights all the way. Let's go. If you'll just show up and answer me, listen, the future is going to be different than the past. Everything's going to change. Except it isn't. And the cycle repeats itself. And you guys know that, especially if you have kids. You know, something happens, a juice cup spills on the carpet again. They wreck the picture frame hanging on the wall because they're playing football in the house again. And you fly off the rails and you yell at them. And there's these moments, like, 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 like the quiet right after that, and you're going, man, I did it again. You know, parenting out of anger. Certainly not patience. Certainly not grace. You know, God, it... If you can find a way to make sure that these messages don't take deep roots in my kid's heart, it'll never happen again. (laughs) The lies we tell ourselves. And the cycle repeats. The cycle repeats when we eat too much, when we drink too much, when we screen time too much. God, fix this for me. And I'll never do it again. And the cycle repeats itself. Big takeaway this morning, and I recognize that looking back on my life as a kid, as a teenager, driving down the road, I can see it now. Looking back, man, I recognize the big idea for the day. I recognize this. God is holding on to me far tighter than I was holding on to him. God is holding on to me far tighter than I am holding on to him. That's what Judges is about, that God's people are stuck in this cycle throughout the book of Judges. Uh, We're not going to go through each one of the Judges. That's for another time, but it's a fantastic read, if not just simply entertaining. Uh, They're stuck in this cycle, uh, this cycle of they they get caught in some kind of sin. There's a suffering that comes along with that because every sin has a gotcha, and God doesn't want it to getcha, right? So the suffering, the self inflicted wound that they're living in. And then there's like a save me, right? Like, God, help. You know, I'll never do this again if you just come and bail me out this one time, this one last time. The future's going to look different than the past. And then God does. There's salvation. Uh, sin, suffering, save me, salvation. That comes like when a kid is like, hey, you know, mom, I want to climb up this ladder. I want to get on the roof. I want to climb the tree. And mom's like, that's a terrible idea. Don't do it. And the kid's like, I'm going to do it anyway. Sin, up on the roof now. Oh my goodness, what have I done? I'm really in a dangerous, precarious situation, right? Suffering. Mom, help, get me down. The ladder fell down. I'm too high in the tree. I'm going to fall, whatever it is. Save me. And then mom comes, bails you out one more time, salvation for a little while. Only the pattern that we start to see happening in the book of Judges, it isn't just this flat cycle that keeps going around in a circle. Because the the period of salvation gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And the duration, the time of that suffering gets longer and longer and longer. So it isn't just a cycle going around and around and around like a record, baby. (laughs) 
Like a few of you got that reference. Uh, also a record. It's a whole thing. Anyway, it's not flat. It's a, it's a downward spiral into oblivion. And Samson is the last judge in the book. And we drop in on the story at, at nearly the very, very bottom of the story of judges. And what we see in Samson as a judge, he really isn't even a judge at all. You know, they called them judges back then. Today we would look at, uh, at like Gideon or Ehud, Barak, Deborah, and we look at them at like a, like a hero. Like you think about a, a Marvel hero. Uh, you, you think about a, a superhero who came to do super things. Except for what we see in Samson isn't that at all. He doesn't have a code that he lives by. He's not like Superman where he's like, I promise, you know, I'm always going to tell the truth. I'm going to uphold justice and the law. I'm never going to kill anybody. That's not Samson. Samson is an anti-hero to all of this stuff. He doesn't live by any kind of code. Samson, the uh, anti-hero, is like Batman, right? He's like dark and mysterious, like Deadpool. He does all kinds of awful things. You have a hard time, like, rooting for him. Like Taylor Swift. It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. It's also the name of today's message. I'm the problem. Samson is the anti-hero in the story. Like, Like, it's really, really hard to root for a guy like this. I mean, this is a guy who kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. This is a guy who takes 150 pairs of foxes, ties their tails together, sets them on fire, and releases them in a Philistine wheat field. Like, it's just wild stories that you can't make up if you tried. He killed 30 guys to settle a gambling debt. He's not a good guy, right? But you're kind of along for the ride because you want to know what happens next. What is God doing? How does a guy like this get included in the Bible? I think throughout this series, uh, three weeks, Samson, no fly too far. We're going to see exactly what God does with a guy like that, holding on tightly to him, to his people, and all of us. Let's jump on the story. It's a wild one. Listen, we're going to go to Judges chapter 13. I mentioned the Bible app earlier. You can check that out. We are a phone-friendly church. Judges 13. Let's kick it off in verse 1 where we read this. Again, the Israelites, <laughs> one more time, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, throughout this series, the Philistines are going to be important, so we might as well learn a little bit something about them. The Philistines are like the the huge rival of the Israelites, of God's people. It's a real, like, U of M, Ohio State kind of rivalry. Sort of, it's, it's much worse than that. It's, it's nothing like that at all. Okay, so the Philistines had all of these technological advances on the Israelites. They just set them ahead, right? They're not going head to head. The Philistines are just in charge all the time. Uh, they discovered and implemented weaponized iron long before the Israelites did. Uh, they invented, discovered boats before, and that led to all kinds of opportunities. They lived in multi-storied homes. Meanwhile, the Israelite people are just trying to like, keep track of their sheep, uh, make sure they don't go wandering off. Like, this isn't like an even, an even match. Morally, the Philistines really leave something to be desired. They pioneered uh, the culture around the uh, Mishtah, which is a week-long drinking party. So maybe they are a lot like Ohio State University. Okay, the last one. That was that? How was that? Oh, boy. Some of you are walking out. Sorry, Ohio. Okay. Um, <laughs> On a serious note, though, uh, what we have to recognize is the Philistines unspeakably cruel people. And they're cruel to the Israelites. And they're keeping them in bondage. They're keeping them in slavery, in servitude. 
for 40 years. 40 years, a number of completion, 40 years, all of the years, a, a generation. Uh, the people that we're talking about in this story don't have a recollection of not being enslaved, of not being oppressed by the Philistine armies. It's not that they forgot it, they just never knew it. 40 years uh, completion, 40 years, 40-day uh, flood, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus was tempted 40 days uh, in, in the wilderness by the devil. It's all of the years. They're at rock bottom. This is the moment. Verse 2. This is the moment when a certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. Now, throughout this birth narrative, throughout this story of like, like Samson's origin story, we never find out the, the mom's name of Samson. And I think that's intentional. We get a lot of information about Samson uh, and his family. We get, the, we get the tribe that he's part of. We get tons of geography. We get a brief medical history of mom, but we never get her name. I think the author knows the name, but it's intentionally obscured from us to highlight what God is up to is often done behind the scenes. As we think about the spirals and these cycles that we find ourselves into, and we start to think God is nowhere to be found. Oh, no, no. Just because you can't find him doesn't mean he isn't anywhere, right? He's behind the scenes. He's still acting the whole way through, verse 3. And the angel, the angel of the Lord appeared to mom and said, you're barren and you're childless, but you're going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. What isn't said here is even more important than what is said here. What don't we get? And and the cycle that every judge, every people of Israel, this whole cycle that we've heard again and again and again and again. Sin, suffering, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Crying out for help. God, I can't take the enslavement for another minute. I can't take the oppression for me or my kids, for another year. What's noticeably absent in the story so far, in the pattern so far, is an I'm sorry moment. Yet, God saves anyway. That is a beautiful part of the story. In your cycle, that you've lived in for 40 years. (laughs) Might as well have been. In your self-destructive pattern, you don't even know what Jesus, uh, the life to the fullest, the words of Jesus, you don't even know what that means anymore, if you ever did. You're not crying out for help. You gave up on being helped a long time ago. Nobody's coming to rescue you. Nobody's coming to save you. You don't even care about rescuing yourself. You don't even care about saving yourself. There's no God, help me, save me moment in the story, not for you, not for them. Yet, God saves anyway. It's like, I may have stopped caring about my self-destructive behavior. I may have stopped caring about my sin a long time ago, but God never did. And he's intervening anyway. Verse four. Okay, so you're gonna give birth to a son See to it, some conditions, see to it that you drink no wine or any fermented drink so you don't eat anything unclean 
And you'll become pregnant, have a son who's never, whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. A couple of things on Nazarite. He's not allowed to eat anything, drink anything that comes from the vine. This is a specific reference to alcohol. So like no wine, no Cabernet, but also no Corona, right? Like nothing else, no Miller Lite, no Three Buck Chuck. There's no way that wine at Trader Joe's is still $3. I'll have to fact check that later, but like absolutely not. Right? But this guy, he can't even have any like unfermented Welch's grape juice. It's, it's, that, it's held that closely. Only water, maybe milk on a special occasion, right? Uh, along with that, he's not to touch any dead bodies, so we're not going to touch that one. And the last thing is no razor is going to touch his head. He's never going to get a haircut. We're going to cover that one in part three of the message titled, Hey There, Delilah which is a lot of fun. <laughs> I think it's a reference for him. Just all of this has happened very, very conspicuously. The Nazarite vow was a huge religious vow. It weighed very heavily, and it was also very public. It's like what some of us might do when we want to seek after God's will, when we want to know something, or when we want to experience God's closeness, God's presence in our life, really, really near uh, we, we might put in a request for our church family to, to pray, uh, ask others to pray. We might fast, Right? We might carry something around in our pockets to remind us of the presence of God. We're like specifically trying to rely on him in, in an extra heavy kind of way. And usually that was voluntary and temporary. They did the same thing with the Nazarite vow. And it was voluntary and temporary. This story takes a turn where it's compulsory and permanent from birth. So we're like setting the seeds of symbolism for later on. And God is saying, your savior, by the way, is not going to be Samson. This guy is a messed up story. We don't read Samson to know what to do. We read Samson to know what not to do, right? But God is saying, listen, your savior is going to be set apart, is going to be different, is going to be holy. And we can start to see the seeds of a real savior take place. Okay, in the next line, we read this. It's really cool uh, verse in verse 5, and he says, he, that Samson, will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, it's a, it's a simple line on the outside of it. But when you start to get into what the words mean behind it, all of this depth comes to light. And so in, uh, in, in seminary, I had to learn Hebrew. And so now I'm going to teach you some Hebrew because hurt people hurt people. That's like what, <laughs> that's what we do. This is the word behind this one, he, uh, he'll take the lead. The word is yehel. Can you say yehel? Yehel. It sounds a little bit like a cuss word in church. That's kind of the point. The word, it means to begin as if to open a wedge. That's what God is up to here. Samson is going to be the wedge. Samson is going to be the tip of the blade. Samson is going to be the spike that drives the wedge between God's people, the Israelites, and their enemies, the Philistines. By the way, one time I actually like slammed this for a different sermon illustration, and it flew and, and hit the person in front of me, and they never came back to this church. So we're not going to do that one anymore. <laughs> but the wedge, yell at Samson's role. He's going to drive a wedge. Now, now you can read this as driving a wedge between God's people, the Israelites and the Philistines, but I think we would be wise to recognize the spiritual reality that's happening beneath the surface. It wasn't the Philistines that were the problem. Our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. No, no. Our struggle is against 
the cosmic powers of this present world's darkness. Our struggle is against sin itself. The wedge that Samson was driving, was, was opening up, was between God's people and their sin. The wedge is between us and our sin. Because some of us, we've been stuck in these cycles of self-destructive. We've been stuck in these cycles of sin for so long that we've learned to like identify as part of it. We've learned that it's a part of us and we could never be separated from it before. I'm, ju- I'm an addict. I'll always be an addict. There is no success. There is no recovery. There is no victory for me. This is just who I am. I don't even know what a life to the fullest could be like. And then Samson comes around as this wedge and begins to separate us from our sin. Another picture that you could use to, to describe Yehel is a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon. And God is the, is the perfect surgeon. And Samson is just the tip of that blade, not even the whole blade of the scalpel, but just the tip of it. And the surgeon opens us up and he sees a, and she sees a, a cancerous mass that's like all tied up w- with the rest of our body, with the rest of our, the good parts of our body. And the skilled surgeon begins to slice and begins to cut, cut away every one of those connective tissues. To what? To what end? To eventually separate it out and remove the cancer entirely. You see, sometimes we have these moments of pain, Right? Where God is separating us. Sometimes we call those moments rock bottom. And they suck. There's no way around it. Sometimes it's like, it's like a high bottom, you know. It was a car accident. And nobody else knew that alcohol was involved. But I did. And I knew what I had to do in that moment. And I never even had to tell anybody about my problem. I found help. I went to recovery. Four, five people might know about that thing and help me, keep me accountable. My rock bottom was high. That was a true story a friend of mine shared with me. Others, it's much lower. Celebrating Veterans Day, I was kicked out of the military. My mom looked at me and said, I don't even want to see you anymore. Get out. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. The bottom is much deeper. The wedge. Come on, it hurts sometimes. And this is what we do. Sometimes we look at something like this and we think, man, that was the end of a really bad story. And then God started to act. Hang on. What Samson teaches us, rock bottom, the wedge, it isn't prelude to the story. It's part of the story. This too is God's action. And it might not feel like the kindness, love, grace, and compassion of God because sometimes he he works very abruptly and abrasively. Sometimes he works very, very painfully. The wedge of God to do whatever it takes to separate God's people from our sin is no less kind, is no less compassionate and gracious. He's at work. It's not prelude to the story. It's part of the story. Now, 
The Samson story begins telling the story of God's grace, but it doesn't end. And if you're like, well, where does it end? Who's the next judge? We don't even see it in the book of Judges. We don't even see it in the Old Testament, right? Now we're starting to read the Bible like Samson is teaching us to read the Bible. He is not the point. He is just showing us who the point was. Let's continue on in this story. Okay, in verse 8, Manoah prayed to God, right? He hears about this, this miraculous birth coming up. He goes, pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God send it to us to come again to teach us, teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. Anybody who is going to have a baby for the first time is rattled, is probably scared to death, like you get that. If an angel came to you and said, this child is also going to be the wedge to separate God's people from their sin, you'd be like, ah, I'm looking for a couple of pointers along the way. Can we do that? They offer, um, I left this part out, but they offer some food to the angel. And they say, uh, would you stay? And would you eat with us? And the angel says, no. Which I think is really powerful because in the Old Testament, eating with somebody, breaking bread with somebody is a sign of being at peace with them. And God is like, oh, no, no, no. Make no mistake, we are not at peace with one another. We're working on peace. We're just not there yet. And so the angel counters and said, I can't, I can't break bread with you. I can't have this meal with you. Not yet. We need a mediator. But until then, you can offer me a sacrifice and I'll take that. And so they offer the sacrifice to the angel. <laughs> The angel, verse 17, Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord. He gets some questions. What's your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? And he replies, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. And that A of the footnote, that's not a typo. I actually asked to keep that in uh, because your name is beyond understanding. The name is actually translated in a rough, like literal way, wonderful. Sometimes these footnotes are worth like chasing down in your own, in your own Bible reading and you see these things. Uh, you know, remember the song, what a powerful name, you know, what a beautiful name, what a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. Uh, the word translated here, beyond understanding, sometimes wonderful. Almost every time in the Old Testament that that word is used, that that name is used, wonderful, it's used to describe God. So Manoah and his unnamed wife, Manoah and his wife recognize we're not just in, pres- in the presence here of a messenger of God. We are in the presence of God himself. And so he has this like husband-wifey kind of conversation that so many of us can identify with, right? Like as soon as he hears this, he slams down his face in the mud, face in the dirt. She does the same, like, I can't believe that we're in presence of God over here, verse 22. And he goes, we are doomed to die, he said to his wife. And he's like mumbling it, right? Because his face is in the dirt. Because we have seen God and his far superior wife. (laughs) He really married up out of this one. Right? Somebody who's so much uh, wiser, uh, more mature, so much smarter, turns to him and says, Dude, paraphrasing, <laughs> if the Lord meant to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and grant offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. Dude, God wouldn't have come here and said, Hey, listen, this whole wedge thing between like separating God's people and their sin to break this cycle of, of of suffering, yeah? And, and Samson, it's Nazarite vow, and it's really complicated, but they, I got a much bigger story that's at work here. He didn't come all to tell you all this just to kill you at the end. Like, come on, man, I'll act like you've been here before. All right. Verse 24. The woman gave birth to a boy. Named him Samson. And he grew 
The Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. While he was in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtal. Chapter ending. I want to make a couple parting comments on it for what it's worth in the story. We're just starting off the series. There's no arc that's closing here. It's just the very, very beginning of an arc that's starting off. The first comment, first I guess note that I just want to make on this is there are no wasted parts in the story of God. God didn't look at Samson and see how flawed he was and how terrible and the bad judgment calls that he made again and again and again and say, you know what? I'm going to save him in spite of all of those things. No, no, no. There are no flaws in the providence of God. And there are no loose threads either. God is doing something with every bit of the broken pieces of Samson's life and of yours. When you're in this cycle and going, what is God ever going to do with this? There are no loose threads in the providence of God. There's no mistakes in the plan. There's no flaws in the plan. He's doing something with it all, every last bit. And even the throwaway details, like the names of places that we have a hard time pronouncing, Mahana Dan, oh, it's between Zora and Eshtel. It's probably nothing, right? Why do you even include it? Mahana Dan is a military training ground. It's probably worth mentioning that these people that got so incredibly comfortable with their oppressors, the Philistines, God broke in and brought a savior for them, an anti-hero for them who would grow up on a military training ground, learning how to fight, learning how to use weapons. He will eventually use them. We'll see that in parts two and in part three. There's no loose threads in the providence of God, not in Sam's story and not in your story either. The second thing is, parents, I gotta talk to you guys. Man, what we learn about Manoah and his wife, they did what they could. You know, they're, they're, they're followers of God. They tried their best. And we are not the kind of church that looks at somebody like Samson and says, oh, you know what, he was okay because in the end, the ends justified the means. Absolutely not. We look at somebody like Samson and go, wow, God is amazing for saving a guy like that, for working powerfully through a guy like that. And for his parents, who just had to watch him grow up and make bad decision after bad decision, you know, at the, at the same time, they had access to Proverbs. They had Proverbs 22. I imagine Manoah and his wife reading, train up a child in the way she, they should go, and when they're older, they will not depart from it and recognize. And Manoah looking over at his wife and go, you know, it's an observation, not a promise. It's an observation, not a promise. We're doing what we can. Some of you got a Samson. You would just love for them to come into the saving relationship with Jesus and it hasn't happened yet. The story is for you. Pray and keep on praying. If your kids are so little that they haven't had this wandered off story or haven't had it yet, pray for one of these boring testimonies. Every time we do these baptism weekends, somebody shares the story about how I was born into a Christian family and I always kind of walked closely to him and I don't know I guess I don't have I wish I had a really exciting story it's like no 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 as a parent we don't want a Samson story we want one of those really really boring stories of God's faithfulness always being near pray for your kids and don't stop praying for your kids and the last observation is just the bigger picture that God is telling we're just on the very beginning of 
we see this birth announcement for Samson calling him a Nazarite, which was a really high, uh, high calling, this priestly calling set apart. But it was also such a thing a thousand years later as a Nazarene who was a low cultural outcast and his name was Jesus. The story is told 1,200 years before the birth of Jesus. And I don't think the author had any idea how parallel these stories would be. The Nazarite and the Nazarene. The person of this high moral priestly calling, Samson, who was anything but. The, the outcast and rebel, Jesus, the Nazarene, who was anything but. The birth announcements. The angel breaking into Manoah and his wife and saying, you guys, in your old age, you thought you were childless. You thought you were barren. You thought you couldn't have kids. A miracle is happening. You're going to have kids and there's going to be a celebration and there's going to be honor that's brought to your family. And the angel that breaks into Mary and her fiance Joseph's life as teenagers and say, you're going to miraculously have a baby too. It's not going to bring celebration and honor. It's going to bring shame and poverty. Yet in these stories, we see who a hero isn't, Samson. And we see who a savior is, Jesus. We started this time by looking at these cycles of patterns that we're stuck into and we want to get out of. And I would love to look at a story like Samson and say, three tips on how to break out of your self-destructive pattern or how to help your kids break out of their self-destructive pattern. But it's not a self-help story. It's a God-saved story. It's a gospel story. When you hear a story like this, there's nothing to do but to praise God. Because your pattern, your kid's pattern, Well, God is holding on to them. God is holding on to you far tighter than you are holding on to him. It's gospel. It's God's work through and through. And the only response that we can give is to worship. So church at all of our locations, I invite you to stand up and let's worship him. Let's go to this God who began a good work and will see it through to completion. Let's go to this God who loves us enough to break us out of our self-destruction, of our sin. Let's go to this God whose never-ending, overwhelming, reckless love is still chasing after us. Let's pray. Jesus, you're at work. Jesus, you are in pursuit of every one of us. Jesus, you see these habits that we're caught into. God, you see these patterns that we just can't break out of. God, you know the myriad of different ways that we try to rescue ourselves. And Jesus, you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so right now, we worship. Later on, we'll learn. Later on, we'll grow. Later on, we'll discover new ways of chasing after you in return. But right now, We worship your holy name running after us. In your name, amen. 
Hey church, it's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.